This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the journalist and historian Robert D. Kaplan about his new book, The Tragic Mind, Fear, Fate, and the Burden of Power. In your introduction, Robert, you say your intention is to inspire, not depress. You have done so. Your book is a joy to read. It brings the wisdom of the ancient Greeks to the rescue of our modern and anarchic present. And I, for one, am grateful. Perhaps you can begin with your own experience as a journalist in countries lost in the wilderness of tyranny and anarchy, and then we can go on to talk about what you mean by thinking tragically. Well, thank you so much for that introduction. Uh, It means a lot to me. I think that the biggest distinction I've often found between people who disagree is that they've had different life experiences And my life experience as a journalist in Central Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East and elsewhere really flies in the face of the Washington elite. The Washington elite thinks in terms of just its democracy versus tyranny because they've never experienced disorder in their lives, real disorder, where there's nobody in, in control, no, you know, where there are drunken soldiers at roadblocks who can arrest you, who can rob you. I've had those experiences. People in Washington have not. So they tend to think that the biggest problem is that there is not enough democracy in the world, where in the world that I've covered, it's that there's not enough order in the world. And order is something, unless you've experienced disorder, it's hard to imagine it. But the Greeks knew all about this because the Greeks were too rational not to admit the power of the irrational that lay on the other side of rationality. The Greeks had a god for this, a very complicated god, Dionysus. And Dionysus believed, Dionysus represented, you know, emotion, passion, chaos, disorder in the world. And the Greeks even, you know, the great great Greek playwright Euripides even wrote a play about it called The Bacchae. And if you read The Bacchae, The Bacchae are the modern day Russian war criminals. They're the Nazis. They're, you know, they're others uh, who just run around and commit atrocities. They're war criminals of, you know, of every stripe almost. They're the Cossacks. They're the mob. And the Greeks knew that because disorder lay on the other side of order and it was very real. They respected disorder and they knew that the greatest triumph of civilization was to create order. That, you know, from order, you can go about making things freer, less tyrannical, but first you have to create the order and then you can go about making it less and less tyrannical by stages. And what you, the Greeks mean by knowing that there's something immediate, irremediably wrong with the world is the presence of Dionysius. 
risk. That's part of it. The Greeks also knew that many problems have no solution. They knew that leaders, people in their daily lives face only bad choices often. And yet the world at the same time was beautiful. So that the Greeks could admit a beautiful world and then then admit that the world could not be fixed ultimately. That's why in this book, I define tragedy not as the triumph of good over evil or not the common misfortunes of life, which we all face and which is the rule of life or vile crimes against humanity like, uh, you know, like the Nazis, like others like them, or like the Rwandan or genocide or, or whatnot. The Greeks had no answer to those things, and they didn't deal with it. That's why I've basically written evil out of my book. It's, the, you know, tragedy is not about the triumph of, of evil over good. It's about the the difficult choices that we all make between one good and another good, and whichever you choose, you will cause suffering or problems somewhere along the line, because there was no, there is no perfect solution to the real questions of life. And, and yet at the same time, life is beautiful. The Greeks knew all of this. They dealt easily with contradictions. So it's all about the triumph of one good over another good that causes suffering. And the Americans lack this tragic sensibility. I mean, we, you know, account for the doctrines of American exceptionalism, which set us above all other human beings in the world, and we're never supposed to die. Yes. You know, what's ironic, Lewis, is that one of the great works, one of the great modern works that hark back to Greek tragedy that the Greeks would have approved of are the Federalist Papers by the Founding Fathers. Because in the Federalist Papers are just full of tragic thinking. They're full of everything that could possibly go wrong in a state. And because they were such pessimistic warriors, they produced a country of optimists because they worried about all these things and they dealt with them so that many bad things did not happen. If you listen to Madison or Hamilton talk about how men are rapacious and cruel and vile and only looking for their own advantage, if you read them about how people will always divide into factions, even when what's dividing them is very petty and not worth arguing about. This is the spirit of the Federalist Papers, and this is very much in the spirit of the Greeks. Well, the Founding Fathers did their work so well that, as I said, many things did not go wrong with America. On top of it, we are the product, we are the beneficiary of the world's greatest geography. We have long ocean coasts on both oceans in the temperate zone. We have deep water ports. We have the wealthiest farmland in the world, the wealthiest hydrocarbon and mineral resources more than almost any other country in the world. We're separated from the old world, yet we're connected to it by sea lines of communication. It's not just who Americans are, but where they happen to live on the map. 
that makes them so powerful. And they take this for granted. You know, it's hard having a discussion about geography with American intellectuals or policymakers because they take it for granted. They assume it's not important. And they assume that because America is so powerful, it's because Americans just have a better character than other people. This is nonsense. Um, We're a product of where we happen to live. And that combined with the wisdom, with the tragic sensibility of the founding fathers, or the founders, as I should say, um, has combined to make Americans, make it very hard for Americans, at least in recent decades, to think tragically. Right. I mean, we we simply assumed uh, that the world is predictable, benign, quiet, orderly, and safe. We think that's what democracy is, but democracy isn't that. Democracy is is uh, chaos. Democracy is not about elections, I found out, tra- you know, as a journalist overseas. It's about building institutions. It's about developing a middle class. Only when you have those things can you then have a stable democracy. Um, because a democracy where it takes nine months to form a government after a close election, or where there is no institutions, nothing works, there are electricity blackouts every day, there's high levels of crime, that's a dysfunctional democracy. And we find that in many parts of the developing world. You know, but that's something Americans have not really, you know, internalized, psychologically internalized, because their country, for the most part, despite all the political divisions we have now, for the most part, our democracy functions. It provides America, Americans have had a happy experience with mass democracy generally, up until recently. And because of that, they assume that their experience is more important than the experience of Egyptians or people elsewhere trying to build states themselves. You know, you know, America imposes its own history on many parts of the world and assumed and basically says our experience is more is more important than yours. So copy ours. Right. I mean, I remember Time magazine and the summer of before September 11 came out with a statement that we make America is the greatest empire in the history of the world and we create our own realities. Remember that? (laughs) I don't remember it, but I can certainly believe it. Yeah. But that's what you're saying. Yeah. In other words, the, uh, The laws are made by men, not by God. Exactly. And another thing that, that, you know, that 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 comes out through the Greeks is that arrogant people are idiots. They're foolish people because anything can befall any of us as a person or as a country in the next 24 hours. The most charmed of lives can be reduced to ashes. The most successful nation state can suddenly be attacked or have a crisis. So one of the things I emphasize in this book is to cultivate tragic thinking. And tragic thinking is about anxious foresight. It's about constructive fear or constructive pessimism 
pessimism, if you will. It's like it's considering all the things that can go wrong before you take action. And yet at the same time, you should not be immobilized by that fear or else you'll do nothing in despair. So tragic thinking, it's a sensibility. It's not an ideology. It's, you know, it's about realizing the complexity of the world. I think it was Edith Hamilton, the great Greek classicist from, I think she was from Baltimore. I can't remember exactly in the early and middle part of the 20th century, who said not to think tragically robs life of its significance. Yes. Edith Wharton said something of the same thing when she said that a frivolous society gains significance only but by what is frivolity destroys. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's yeah. That's Edith Wharton. The but but Americans. I mean, I mean, what do you say to a figure like Trump? Trump is beyond the pale in this discussion. I don't exactly know what the Greeks would make of him. They would, you know, they would probably consider him one of the, uh, you know, one of the chaotic forces unleashed by Dionysus, you know, Uh, somebody unknowing of himself and therefore unknowing of the effect he has on elsewhere. But Trump is significant in the sense that he shows how American democracy, as generally successful as, as it has been over the last 250 years, you know, that doesn't mean that something awful cannot befall it at any moment. When I hark back, one of the, the people I write about positively in the book, though he wasn't, per- though they weren't perfect by any means, but they're certainly positive compared to what we have now, is Dwight Eisenhower and George H.W. Bush, you know, who really inculcated tragic thinking without being intellectuals, without being, uh, you know, without reading about the Greeks necessarily. They just did. Remember, Eisenhower was the first president we had who had access to masses of nuclear weapons, both atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs, and in one crisis over another, refused to use them, even though his advisors on occasion advised him to contemplate using it. And George H.W. Bush, you know, you know, because Eisenhower and the elder Bush had actual experience in war, they were very, very careful and shrewd about entering war or about taking decisions based purely on some emotional impulse. Relate that then to what's going on today in Ukraine. Well, actually, um, I give the Biden administration, with all of its problems, with a number of its mistakes, generally good marks. Because on the one hand, they're helping Ukraine quite dramatically with weapon shipments. It's, you know, it's the greatest demonstration, the greatest effective demonstration of American power since the first Gulf War in 1991. Uh, they're doing all this, but yet they're refusing to use American troops. They're refusing to give the Ukrainians every weapon system they ask for. 
They're making, they're doing their utmost to worry constantly about the war spreading to NATO countries or about Putin using weapons of mass destruction, not only, uh, not only at nuclear, but chemical and biological. So they're governed by fear and yet they're not immobilized by fear. So I think that um, on the whole, though we don't know how this is going to turn out, it, it has been a very decent demonstration of American power. I think, you know, you know, I, I think that this national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, may be the most effective national security advisor we've had since Brent Scowcroft in the first Gulf War and in the elder Bush administration. And I think we have a real wise man of the same caliber of the wise men of the 19th of the early Cold War era in the CIA director, William Burns, who's also functioning as sort of a super secretary of state. So I think on the whole, so far, with all its problems, the administration has gotten this more or less okay. But it's a very fine line. I mean, the game of brinkmanship is is, uh, hard, hard to pull off. I know it is very hard. And I think, you know, a few weeks ago, some, you know, very, uh, you know, uh, you know, pe- you know, real aggressive people who felt we should do a lot more were telling, uh, you know, the administration that they worry too much about nuclear weapons and all of that. And yet and then Sullivan, the national security advisor, shot back saying, you're quite right. We worry constantly about the use of nuclear weapons because we should. That's our job, you know. And so it is a very fine line. We won't, we don't know how this will turn out. You know, our greatest challenges lie ahead, not in the past, not so, not just with Russia, but with China. Because were there ever a military conflict with China, as I point out in the book, it would have a far more devastating effect on the world economy and world markets and lives than anything than we've seen in Ukraine. Talk about the way the American elites, at least in the last 40, 50 years, don't seem to learn anything. I mean, why they don't suffer any any consequences. Right. I remember the book that McNamara wrote about his experience of the Vietnam War. He said he never had a better time. He said it was a wonderful, he had a wonderful time. Yeah. Um, I think there are several reasons. There are several, first of all, the baby boomer generation, which is now in power for the most part and has been for the last 20 years or so, the first generation in world history never to have experienced organized violence because even World War II was not fought on American soil, to say nothing of subsequent conflicts in the world. And it's the first generation in history to be financially secure. So never having experienced things like the Great Depression, never having gone overseas to fight in World War II or something like that, they have been basically cushioned against tragic against against tragic experiences that's part of it 
The other part of it is America's geography. You know, America is so powerful because of its, you know, its minerals, its, you know, its farmlands, etc., its geographical position, as I said earlier, that even when we make a, a blunder, we have blunders like every 30 years, like in, in Iraq, in Vietnam, etc., it doesn't really affect us that much. We just shake it off and go on as if nothing has happened because we're just so powerful and blessed that we can do this. But mistakes of that sort by a smaller country would devastate that country. It might even destroy that country. So that's why there are no real consequences. You know, we're allowed a massive blunder like three or four times in a century. And that's basically what we've been doing. We only need to operate at maybe 50, 60 percent efficiency, where smaller countries, say Taiwan, for example, which is very careful in its rhetoric towards China, etc., have to operate at 95 percent efficiency just to survive. But nevertheless, you think the time has come for the Americans to acquire a tragic sensibility. Absolutely. Because the world is smaller. Technology has not defeated geography, but it's shrunk geography. We're closer together. Uh, we're a more anxious, claustrophobic world. We're economic disruptions in China, in Europe, where climate change, with all these things, America is less blessed by splendid isolation as it used than it used to be and will be less and less blessed as time goes on which means mistakes will affect us more you know another thing i forgot to say lewis about why you know nothing affects us why we're so why we're just so have so much of an advantage over other places is america was the only country in world war 2 that did not see its infrastructure basically destroyed by the war you know england germany russia china they lost millions they had buildings blown up etc you know america didn't experience any of that. So we had a comparative advantage that lasted for decades after World War II. And yet now that comparative advantage is over. And we have to, you know, we have to think in terms of constructive fear, anxious foresight. We have to think more like the Greeks, that anything can befall us over the next 24 hours if we're not careful. And how do we learn this? I mean, you say at the toward the end of your book that the the only way to learn this is from experience and literature. Yes, because I, you know, experience is something everyone cannot have. Every person in government, or even most people in government, cannot have the experiences that I had in the developing world in war zones. Um, you know, the, you know, most people in government have not experienced poverty in their childhood or anything like that. So mainly, the only way is, is, is literature and to think deeply about literature. And it's not just the Greeks, it's the other writers who I feel inculcate the spirit of the Greeks, like Melville, like Herman Melville, like Albert Camus, 
um, and others like them who, when you read their stories, you read their essays, you're seeing this tragic sensibility. Um, Melville in Billy Budd, you know, which is a story about how beauty is destroyed so that order can go on. And Melville reacts terribly to this. He hates it. He wants you to hate it. But at the same time, he wants you to feel that it's necessary. It's ultimately necessary at the same time. Camus, for his part, in The Rebel, which I think is his greatest work, argues that it's not enough to oppose a regime, to demonstrate and commit violence against a hated regime. You have to have in your mind a clear idea of what can replace that regime. If you have no idea what can, can replace that regime, simply toppling it is not enough. It's not altogether moral either, because a regime, even ones that are very terrible, do provide some degree of order. And therefore, to topple it mean it, it, it becomes the responsibility of the rebel to have a new conception or system, a bureaucratic system of order, at least in his or her mind, in order to, um, for their actions to be fully moral. How do you connect that to Prometheus? Prometheus rebelled against Zeus in the deserts of Scythia, and his res and 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 Camus uses Prometheus as an example of how revolt has been a distinguishing characteristic of humanity since the dawn of time, and will continue to be. There will always be revolts, and what Camus is saying. Yes, there will always be revolts, but the rebel must consider what comes after the revolt, especially if it's successful. So Prometheus is the spirit of, revol of revolt, of revolution. But as we know, revolutions don't always turn out right and can sometimes create a situation that's even worse. But with Prometheus, Prometheus brings to mankind the gift of the arts and sciences. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm dealing with him, Camus was dealing with him rather in his book, is basically as a rebel. Uh, okay. So, you know, Prometheus, like a number of the Greeks, like Dionysus, is a complex figure who represents different things. Anyway, I, I love your book, uh, Robert, and... Thank you very much for talking to us today. And, and this is Lewis Lapham with The World in Time. We've been talking to Robert D. Kaplan, author of the new and very fine book, The Tragic Mind, Fear, Fate, and the Burden of Power. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details. <laughs>